when I developed like my online presence, when I was first in corporate America, I was terrified to like have a very personal, um, to share personal stories and share personal things because I worried about that. And then the more I thought about how much I didn't show up at work as my fullest self um, back then, you know, like even my hair, I would straighten it a lot more or I'd pull it back. Like I never wore my Afro out. Um, I, I was the only black person in so many scenarios, so many situations. And at the time, I felt like success looked like, you know, fitting in. That was Nikita T. Mitchell, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 86. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing and one thing only, telling the truth about our lives. No one's trying to sell you anything. I promise that no one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life by offering a 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything. I'm so over that, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between that makes up life. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which means that you can often expect to hear adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you also won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. The show is 100% listener funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you, thank you so much. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you are saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a big thank you, you'll get access to over 30 hours of bonus content with new fun stuff added every month, as well as our community discussion page, our virtual book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I talk about my real life in real time and more. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Nikita T. Mitchell. Nikita speaks and writes about why CEOs need to think beyond the bottom line. She's the creator of Above the Bottom Line, a newsletter dedicated to keeping you informed of how the world's most influential companies are taking a stance on social and environmental issues. 
Cited as Diversity MBA Magazine's Top 100 Under 50 Executive and Emerging Leaders, Nikita is an infinitely curious business strategist and keynote speaker who received her MBA from UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, where she was Berkeley Haas MBA Association's first Black female president. A fierce advocate for women's rights, Nikita serves on the Watermark Board of Directors. She's currently a senior manager at Cisco, where she's responsible for strategy and planning initiatives for the company's $20 billion America's sales organization. In this episode, Nikita shares stories from business school and from being a woman in the corporate workplace. We talk about the role of money in both art and activism, and about the fact that women sometimes struggle with the ability to openly ask for the money they need to do the work they're doing. Nikita shares the why and how of her brilliant newsletter, which I love subscribing to, called Above the Bottom Line, and we talk about social impact, corporate responsibility, the efficacy of consumer boycotts, and how the solutions to the issues we care about are often more nuanced and complex than we'd like to admit. On the personal side, Nikita talks about her relationship with her partner, Heather, and shares why having a healthy relationship is a lot harder than having an unhealthy one. We discuss the benefits of therapy, and she shares what she and Heather have done to improve their communication skills within their relationship. Don't you love when people are honest about stuff like that? This entire conversation is filled with that kind of honesty and sharing, so I hope that you love learning from Nikita as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at nicoleantoinette.com slash podcast. Okay, we are rolling. Nikita, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I was going through my old emails. So in preparation for this, for getting to talk to you today, I was like, man, I feel like we've known each other lightly for a really long time, but I wonder exactly how long. So I did a search in my my inbox. Our first emails, it was like multiple URLs ago for me. It was back in 2012. Seriously? Oh my goodness. Was were you running then yet? I can't even remember now. Yes, I started I started running the day I quit drinking, so that was May 1st, 2011. Yeah, so I was like newly into running and that's I think what what our early emails were about was about running. Yes. And I, and I had been following your blog I think for at least a year before that. Um and I when you started running was around the time I started running. I ran my first race in 2011. So that whole transition was really interesting for me to read. That's so funny. I it's like that's a long time already by now, right? So long. long. (laughs) Like you've seen me go through a lot of things. So it will be very nice to get to be really nosy and ask you a lot of questions today. (laughs) Yeah, so so twenty twelve, what's one thing that you can do now that you couldn't do back in twenty twelve? What's changed for you? Oh, I love this question. Um what's one thing that I can do now? wow, this, you just got right to the core of me right there. Yeah, we're not going to mess around, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I have a lot more courage than I did then. Um, I remember in 2011, one of my big goals was to learn how to be fearless. And I remember thinking, you know, people who I see out in the world who are so brave, who have these blogs, these platforms, who speak at events, who have these amazing careers, they clearly are so fearless, right? Like it, it was just what, what I perceived them to be. Um, and I think since then, what I've grown to realize was one, you never really let go of fear. And at each stage of your life, each obstacle you overcome, each challenge you get through, 
you just kind of level up in a way and you start to face new fears. And what I thought was fearlessness was really courage and people being brave enough to say, I'm going to go and walk directly into that thing that scares me because I know when I come out on the other side, I'll be a lot stronger. I'll be a lot better at whatever it is that I want to do. Um, so I'd say since then I've developed the courage to consistently run in the direction of my fears. Mm, I love that. I feel like it's so it's so freeing to not have to wait for this fantasy magical place where there's an absence yeah. right, of fear because that's literally yeah. never going to happen. So you're like, well, if I don't have to wait for that anymore, then I guess I can just start doing the things I want to do. <laughs> Which is also kind of scary. I feel like it's a, it gives you an excuse not to do something to be so afraid, right? But when you realize the fear is not going anywhere, then you realize the decision is up to you. Like you can literally start right now. And then what excuse do you have to put it off? Yeah, I know. So it's it's freeing and then even more scary, right? Yeah, yeah. So this idea of fear, so that's interesting. You mentioned speaking. I know that's something that you did a bunch of in 2016. And I saw that on multiple occasions at different events last year that you gave a talk entitled Ruthlessly Running in the Direction of Your Fears, which is such a great title, by the way. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I'd love for you to share kind of a few key points from that speech, like this idea of kind of running towards your fears. What's that about for you? Yeah, the premise of it really came out of my experience in grad school. I got my MBA from Berkeley um, between 2013 and 2015. And then I took this job working for a mentor of mine as his chief of staff at Cisco. That was what I immediately came out to do. And like those two years and then the following months of me starting that job were like really just fear filled years. And a lot of that was very intentional. So when I went to grad school, I knew I wanted to use that time to develop myself as a leader. I saw that as this like safe place to try different things that I thought made a good leader really, really good and impactful. Um, and so it started with small thing, you know, in hindsight, but at the time, it was huge for me deciding to run for president of our MBA association. And that came about because I was looking at other things to do, less visible things to do. And my partner, when I was kind of going through this like exhausting exercise of deciding what to do, she was like, well, which one scares you the most? And I realized at that point, like being president of, of, of our MBA association, being very visible, being the first black woman to do it would be terrifying for me. And that honestly, I had nothing to lose by trying what was the worst that would happen if I, if I didn't win, right? And so through grad school, I, I was living through the fear of one, doing that job well, also academically surviving that experience, which was really tough for me, and also balancing all the other things that mattered in terms of my career and network and friendships that I wanted to maintain. And then going into the chief of staff role, it's like I was come to this company. It's not typical tech where, you know, everybody's like 26 years old. Cisco is like the old guard, it's like IBM, Oracle, and I'm working with people who are 20 years my senior, have been working at Cisco for 10 to 30 years, their whole careers. And I've, I look like I'm 12. So I'm sitting at this table with all these people who are more experienced than me, have been in tech before, which I hadn't, um, who are looking at me like, why is she the person who got this role? That was the story that I was telling myself, at least. And coming out of that, I felt like... Um, I did a great job of running into the direction of my fears. They were, it, they were really valuable, rewarding experiences that um, I would never change for, for anything. And when I got invited to speak at some of those events, I was like, okay, well, what things would I tell myself? The first speaking engagement I did and I told that, um, I gave that speech was to first-year MBAs. 
And the whole premise was at the end of the day, if you really want to grow into the fullness of your potential, you have to run into your fears. And there's three things that will allow you to be successful. And if I remember them correctly now, the first one was asking for help. It was something I didn't do. And I got to the point where I was just literally on my knees and I had to ask for help. That was really how I, I figured out how to do it. Um, but not being afraid to ask for help was really critical. The second one was, if I remember, um, was taking time to pause and reflect. So I felt like during that time I grew so much and there were so many opportunities I could have taken to capture my growth and look back at that. And there were times I did it, but there were more times that I didn't. And I feel like that was a huge, huge um, asset to yourself as you continue to grow. And I wanted to impart that to them. And I can't remember what the third one was. I'm sure it was related to community. Um, but in different contexts, I use it. The stories evolve um, because I have many stories for all of those points across my career, um, especially in the last three years. Do you feel like you have gotten more comfortable with being afraid of things and doing them anyway? I thought I did, you know, Nicole. Like, I feel like I spent that time doing it so much. And then I'd say last year, I felt like I started to, to plateau in my career and my personal development. And now that I'm ramping back up with something that I care deeply about and I have some new goals for myself, I'm actually finding myself having to basically retrain that muscle. Just like if you stop running for a while, you kind of have to build your endurance back up. It's kind of a painful process for me again, honestly. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think this is such a relevant topic, right? This idea of fear and courage. I've been thinking about courage a lot lately too, and just kind of asking myself questions around just this idea of what does it mean to live a courageous life, right? And thinking a lot about how the way that I have come to think about courage is that it's essentially the opposite of comfort. Like I know what it is to feel comfortable, right? And to feel safe. And that's lovely. I mean, no one wants to feel uncomfortable all the time. <laughs> like yep. that would be, I think that would be too much anxiety for my, my parental <laughs> brain to handle. But yeah. that, you know, there is, I don't think that it's possible to be courageous without being uncomfortable. And so it's really easy for me to have this sort of fantasy of the version of myself that lives this courageous life, right? Like you think of people who are courageous and it's this like heroic, big, bold, you know, they're out there, they're doing the things and it's super inspirational and it looks really shiny, but we don't kind of, I don't know. It's like, I have a tendency to romanticize that and to forget that just by its very nature, any time that you're being courageous, you're wildly uncomfortable and that you can't have one without the other. And so it's kind of a process for me and being like, okay, you're going to be uncomfortable. Like there's literally no other option if you want to do courageous things. Absolutely. Like I, I follow a lot of really amazing black women who are doing work either in the Black Lives Matter movement or I know this woman who is completely dedicated. She has a business completely dedicated to getting black women into political office. And she had her first major win yesterday. And she posts all the time. And it's funny because I, I love how transparent she is about the highs and the lows of the work that she does. And I view them as these like fearless women who are, you know, unabashedly going after what they believe in and standing up vocally, visibly for it every day. And I look at that and I, I think I do what you do and I romanticize it as, oh, if I could only be like them, you know, but they're dealing with the same things every day that we deal with. And it's easy to forget that looking at the highlight reel of everything. Yeah. I mean, and I think that it's so easy to make courage this like 
big thing that kind of happens all in one swoop, right? Like all of a sudden you're courageous or I don't know, like I, I, I forget sometimes that, you know, those women that you just mentioned and anyone that we kind of look up to in this space, that it's, it's actually a sum of small actions done over and over, right? Like courage isn't this thing where like, you know, you dye your hair blonde or like you just like put on your courage thing or whatever. It's, it's mostly just, okay, well, this thing makes me uncomfortable or it makes me uncomfortable to speak out about, you know, X, Y, Z thing on social media, but I'm going to make that choice. And then in the afternoon, I'm going to make a choice to, you know, send out a newsletter that's more vulnerable or to use like the less edited photo on Instagram or do then all those things are like maybe small examples, but I feel like, like anything else, right? Like it's kind of like courage is a muscle that you have to build. And I've been, this is the way that I've been thinking of it lately, that it is those little things do matter because over time that becomes who you are, right? Or the story that you tell about yourself of I'm someone who like, even in the small moments will choose the less comfortable thing. If I, you know, the braver thing and that it's not easy, but it is that simple. Absolutely. I don't know how you started your blog, which I'd be, I'd love to hear just like the initial premise. When I think about my first blog, I was like two years into my career. I was working in corporate America and I tended to silence myself at work. And I had this mentor who we went to lunch one day and I was telling him about the situation on my team and I was just giving him like, I'm, I'm very opinionated. So he knew that part of me, but I didn't show up that way at work generally. And he was just like, stop waiting for somebody to give you permission, Nikita. Stop waiting for, for the right time to share your perspectives, like your perspective matters. And I remember that I was like, it was the impetus for starting my blog. The goal of mine was to start to use my voice and share my perspective on the things I cared about. And I think my first blog post was something around the lines of like, you know, how you can be change the world while in corporate America and had ideas for like volunteering and other things. I was terrified to hit publish on that thing. And the idea of my words being permanently on some place where everybody and people I didn't know could do, could see it and read it. And then every week writing a post that now, when I look back, was so basic, right? But at the time it was terrifying. I think about that exact thing you just said. It was for me, these were these small acts of even sitting down to write something or coming up with ideas and then sharing it with people that were terrifying, that built the muscle that has kind of led to where I am today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think it's never not scary to put yourself out there, right? Because the truth is that people, there will be people that don't like you for it or that don't agree or that have things to say that are mean or that, you know, and obviously we hope that that doesn't happen. And we'd like to think that everyone is respectful or, you know, that we're being as careful as we can with our words, but just like the nature of speaking up and the more controversial the things are that you speak up for, right. Or the more unpopular, the opinion, or the more it's against the status quo, you know, and I mean, I'm still struggling with that and dealing with that as I think a lot of people are, but to be like, I can say this thing that I believe, even if it's going to create this like hailstorm of people who want to unfollow me or whatever. That's like my crippling fear of like having a, building a platform that becomes very mainstream. Like I watch people I love and then they grow and their blogs become popular and they say the wrong thing. The attack that happens is terrifying to me. Um, and some of them handle it, I think in ways that I wouldn't handle it, which would, I think, change the dynamic of it. But I think it's a really crippling fear that can sometimes for me lead to, lead to self-sabotage. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel the same way. I also, I feel like this is one of those situations where contradictory things are true, where, you know, of course we want to call people out, right. For if they say something that we find inappropriate or offensive or, you know, that we disagree with. And obviously that's part of just, you know, like the discourse of this type of stuff that we're talking about. It's like, that's true. And also we have to give people the room to make mistakes. Yes. 
And that's hard, I think, and especially in the social media age, people, I think there just isn't as much space to one, make mistakes and two, even evolve your opinion on things. And if I feel often like I have to have thought so thoroughly about what I want to say and what I know about the topic before I say anything, because if I'm wrong about it, there's no space for me to like really be seen as somebody who can evolve their, their, their understanding of something or opinion about it. Yeah, it's, it's tough that the things that, you know, get the most traction or whatever, you know, you mentioned social media are like, you're the first one to make like the scathing, cynical, biting comment or whatever, you know, or, and as a, and that's, I mean, I guess fine for people who that's their like genre of activity or whatever, but it's like, if you're someone who's maybe more thoughtful or even just like slower or takes your time or like something that I value in friends or kind of colleagues or just people that I look up to are people who are open to learning and growing and are not so attached to like one opinion or one viewpoint that they're never willing to kind of budge from that. And this idea that, you know, you tweet something once and then that's the opinion you're held to forever. I don't know, like that, I I think that that does us a disservice. I completely agree. Completely agree. Well, you're in an interesting position in that, or in a position that I'm not in of having, I mean, I guess like a more traditional job or like a corporate job, right? And so how do you think about, you know, doing this type of stuff outside of that space, like how do you navigate that? Because for me, like I always joke, I'm like, well, I've made myself unemployable, right? Which is like maybe <laughs> true or not true, but it's not like, it is just sort of me, right? Which is good and yeah. bad, but I'm curious how you think about sort of your kind of social media space and these extra projects that you do, you know, and where that intersects with your kind of more traditional job. That's a really interesting um, perspective because I, I guess i I don't see how you'd be unemployable at all. Um, and I think that maybe that's also my viewpoint around when I developed like my online presence, when I was first in corporate America, I was terrified to like have a very personal, um, to share personal stories and share personal things because I worried about that. And then the more I thought about how much I didn't show up at work as my fullest self um, back then, you know, like even my hair, I would straighten it a lot more or I'd pull it back. Like I never wore my Afro out. Um, I, I was the only black person in so many scenarios, so many situations. And at the time I felt like success looked like, you know, fitting in. And then I felt like I was stifled. I felt like I was dying a slow death. And I left that job to kind of figure out what it is I, I could do. And as I left that job and I jumped around a few other jobs before grad school, I felt like I got closer and closer to my more authentic self. And I felt like more and more, I would never want to be somewhere where I couldn't show up that way. Um, and what's interesting about how I ended up at Cisco was, you know, I, I ended up here, a very traditional company. And I think a lot of people probably don't even know the amount of activism and things that I've done um, in terms of diversity and inclusion in business, even before this work. But I came here because a mentor of mine who I worked with, who wrote my letters um, for a recommendation for grad school and who's always respected everything that I've done he's the one who brought me here. And so he brought me here fully knowing exactly how I show up. And it's funny, one of his main pitches for this job had, he's like the best salesman. And one of his pitches for this job was, and I know you care about changing the world. So like, how would, what would you do if you had, you know, access to the world's data? Think about the things you could do to change the world at this company, you know? So I think I haven't found myself in situations where I was brought in without an understanding of exactly who I am and the things I stood for. And I hope that I'm never put in that situation. And honestly, I think I have the level of privilege now. I have a level of privilege now that I can make the kind of choices that I want to make in terms of um, being able to do these 
these things that matter really deeply for me outside of my job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that was intentional. It, you didn't just like, oopsie, I wound up in this, in this place, right? So mm-hmm. like that was absolutely an intentional choice. Are and, you yeah. still, is there kind of a boundary system in your mind of these are the things that I will post and share and these are the things that I won't? Good question. I think if I have an opinion about something, I generally will post it. I think for me, the things I hesitate to post now, I find myself hesitate um, to critique Cisco. So there's a few things that have happened recently that I really don't agree with. And I don't not post it because I think I'd lose my job for it. I don't post it because I don't think that drawing that attention to drawing attention to myself for that particular thing is going to serve the purpose I want to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a little bit of fear of like, okay, I don't know if I should touch that, but also this is not the most important thing to me. So I'd rather talk about the things that really seem more critical. Yeah, no, I love that. That's, I feel like so many kind of private conversations that I've been having with friends and stuff, especially in the last six to 12 months, right? Like with the rapid changes that have been happening politically and just like in the country in general, people's navigating, well, what should I post or what should I speak out about? Or is it okay if I choose to speak out about this thing and not this thing, even though I still do care about that thing, but I can't, you know, it's the kind of this navigate, you can't, you can't do all the things, right? So I think that, you know, what you were just saying that you kind of questioning yourself of, you know, sort of where can I have the most impact or what are the things that are most aligned with like what my long-term goals are to work towards in whatever arena, like both personally and as far as kind of activism goes and being okay with the fact that not everything is going to wind up there. It's not just going to be this like word vomit of things every single day, you know? Absolutely. And I, I don't shy away from mentioning Cisco when it's relevant. So like in my newsletter, I started it largely because of the immigration ban um, and the companies that were responding to it are not responding to it. And Cisco was one of the companies that chose not to respond publicly, at least. We dealt with it internally. We had a lot of conversations internally, but they were very clear on their stance around public um, statement making. And I listed them among the companies that I, I also were highlighting in my newsletter. So I don't feel ter- like I'm not worried about it. Um, but exactly to your point, it's like what matters the most right now for what I'm trying to achieve. It depends. So let's talk about the newsletter because that was the impetus for us having this conversation. You sent me an email of, hey, I started this thing, you know, and I don't remember exactly what you said that, you know, that I would like it, which you're correct. It's funny. I just went through a... I had to subscribe to too many things, right? As we all mm-hmm. do from time to time. And yes. I did a big call of, okay, what are like the 10 things that I'm actually reading and taking action on? Because it got to the point where there were so many things that then I was getting overwhelmed and not doing anything about it. And yours yeah. was definitely one of the ones that made the cut. So I would love for oh, you I'm so grateful. Yeah, to talk about just kind of what the newsletter is and, and maybe why you started it. Yeah. So Above the Bottom Line is a newsletter that I started in February, literally like a week or two after, I think it was the same week of the the executive order um, and the immigration ban. And I was in this state of rage and anger, like a lot of my colleagues and friends were, and I felt like I needed to do something. And at the time, I read this New York Times article that did a really great job of arts, like by industry, saying which companies were speaking up. And I thought to myself, like, man, I wish there was a resource where I could keep track of this, where I would know exactly where companies are talking, um, speaking up about cert or taking action on a wider range of issues. And so I launched this newsletter and I, I say, it's really a way for you, the reader to find out how companies are making a stance on the issues you care about. And so essentially every week, I, every Tuesday morning, I curate 
and send um, a list of headlines that have hit the news over the past week related to a lot of different social justice, environmental issues, political issues, and how companies have made headlines on their action or inaction on those things. And at the top of the newsletter, I generally like share my opinion on whatever is like the hot topic. Like, you know, the United debacle was really hot for a good two weeks. I shared my perspective on that. Um, lesser known thing, lethal injections, um, the state of Arkansas um, executed a few people over the past few weeks. And the pharmaceutical industry has been actually trying to cut back and eliminate the use of their drugs and the lethal injections. I, I shared a primer on that topic and which companies were involved, for example. So, And then I also share just really interesting quotes in any podcast um, and also funny, witty things that I come across um, because sometimes it's really depressing to read these things. And I feel like the positive um, articles are just as important and the jokes and the laughter is just as important to feel like, okay, it's not all a shit show. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, one, you're a great writer and clearly a thorough researcher, so I appreciate that. But it's it, it one of the things that I love the most is that it... It hits a good balance of, I feel like I'm getting good information and sort of education about things that maybe I wouldn't have come across, right? Like maybe I saw it in a headline, but it's definitely kind of like filling in a missing gap for me, some of the things that you talk about. But it's not like to your point of there is still, you know, some lightheartedness and some positivity. It's not like I dread opening it. Like some of the emails yeah. that I subscribe to that even though they're important, I know I'm going to open it and like want to like rage flip the table. You know, so, like, It's I appreciate yeah. that. I also I really like um, you mentioned, you know, giving kind of shout outs to podcasts and stuff. Um, I think, what was it that I found through you? Was it upstream? Yes. Isn't it so good? Yeah, it was, I mean, just this whole idea of kind of a new economy or whatever, I can link to it in the show notes for this, but I appreciate not just that you suggest podcasts, but that you're suggesting specific episodes because sometimes I don't even know where to start. If someone recommends something, right. And they have like a catalog of, you know, 50, 60, 200 episodes, you know, so for someone that I trust to be like, here you go, listen to episode six, (laughs) I find that to be really helpful. You know, it's interesting. So before I got angry at the immigration ban and decided to just do this, I was kind of sitting on a podcast idea. And so Above the Bottom Line was originally being designed as a podcast. And I love podcasts like How I Built This and other ones where you're interviewing business leaders and you're asking them really how they got to where they are and what kind of decisions, tough decisions that they make. And I was curious about the tough decisions that companies make related to social justice and environmental issues. And in doing that in my research to prepare for like creating this podcast, I asked my network, what podcasts do you listen to related to social impact, specifically in business? And surprisingly, there weren't, there are a lot, a lot of them aren't recent, like in terms of they have recent episodes, but there weren't really a lot of good ones. And what I found that there were a lot better episodes for podcasts that were more broadly, had broader topics than there were entire podcasts focused on the issues and that was how I came to the point of like recommending specific episodes because I would just pour through all these podcasts and might find one good episode related to social impact. And, and at the time I was like, well, clearly I have a gap to fill. I should create a podcast. And then I was like, I don't really want to create a podcast. And I created the newsletter instead. Yeah, no, I love that. I'm also always really interested in sort of the lead up to someone starting, you know, a creative project or a side business or whatever. And I'd love, you know, you were obviously just talking about, you know, should it be a podcast? Should it be this? But was there anything else in your decision making process to get this off the ground? Like, what were you asking yourself? How did you decide on the scope of the project? Yeah, Um, I'd say for the past year, I've been, I'd say last summer in particular, like I wrote this blog post about me. Um, the question is, what stuff have you given up? And I read this 
amazing article interview with this female astrophysicist who's a writer, and I can't even remember her name right now. But the first question they asked her was, how did you become both an astrophysicist and a writer? And she was like, I think that's the strangest question because I just never gave stuff up. As a kid, I love solving problems. I love telling stories. And so I still do those things. And the question really becomes, why do we give things up as adults? And I started to ask my question, myself the question of like, what have I given up? And I felt like I was in this career that was really important to me in terms of building out my business acumen. That was my goal. But I'd kind of given up my creativity in the meantime. My job is not very creative. I, I solve problems, but they're not creative problems the way that I am excited about. And I, I felt like I couldn't really even get myself started. So I, I read books like Big Magic. I started playing with Legos. I even started making wigs because I, read, I watched a podcast or a video of this woman talking about making wigs. And I just started to make things with my hands. And I'd say towards the end of 2016, as I started to figure out, well, if my career goals might be evolving a little bit, I'm not quite sure what I want out of my career. What else could I be doing that helped me reach the fullness of my potential, that use the, the gifts that I feel like I have that I don't have a chance to use day to day? And that was like the, the subconscious kind of brewing behind above the bottom line. And then ultimately, once the immigration ban happened and I felt like I need to do something, and I read that article, and it, it so perfectly articulated how companies were reacting, I immediately saw the dots connect. So when I was at Berkeley, I was actually on our socially responsible investment fund. And what that meant was we spent, we had a $2.5 million fund, and we spent our semesters looking at companies, publicly traded companies to invest in based on our thesis around how they do um, in terms of environmental standpoint, social standpoint, and governance standpoint. And I spent my time doing exactly what I do for the, for the newsletter, looking at articles, looking at research on companies, um, looking up reports. So there are really in-depth reports that are available for investors around the governance, social and environmental practices of companies and even rating systems. And I love that. It was one of the highlights of my week, even though we met at 7 a.m. every week. It was insane. Um, and then also every week we would rotate where one person would educate the rest of the group on a topic they cared about. So the topics I covered um, my last semester, for example, were on living wages. So which states, what are, the minim, what are the minimum wages for the states? And then which states are pushing for living wage increases? And the other topic I talked about was diversity on boards and how hard it is to really track the gender and ethnic diversity on publicly traded company boards and why it mattered in terms of the research. And ultimately, when the above the bottom line idea came in my head, it was like, well, you have everything you need to create this. The only thing stopping you is is really just getting on your laptop and building out this website and creating a MailChimp account because these are all things that I, I have the ability to do really quickly. Yeah, well, and I always think that's it's something that it's really easy to overlook the things that come sort of naturally to us, or maybe the things that you know you mentioned all those details report the reports that you can have access to, you know, about companies and going through them. I mean, for some people, that might sound like the worst thing in the world, right? Like to have to do that. <laughs> true. And so, but th that's why I feel like there's such a need. Like I benefit so much as a consumer of your work that I'm not going to go and do all that research on my own, just real talk. I'm not going to do it. Right. So, but yeah. it's really, I don't know. There's something I think that's that we can often overlook when something is not that, I mean, obviously it takes hard work for you, but when something yeah. kind of like really is in our, Absolutely. you know, zone of genius or whatever that like not to overlook that something that comes relatively easily to one person is of huge value and very appreciated by someone, you know, that wouldn't have as easy of a time curating that specific thing. 
I, I appreciate that. I think I'm going through this phase talking about fears and how my fears have been crippling me lately. I think I've been going through this phase of completely undervaluing my skills in the last few months. Um, but it's funny what you just said. It makes me think of how nerdy I am and I like go so deep into topics. So um, I've been looking into boycotts and I'm curious about the efficacy of boycotts. Do they really work, right? Because there's a lot of them happening now. And I found this report and I mentioned it in my last newsletter and I can see who clicks links. And I feel like anytime I, I link to research, nobody clicks it. And it, it's like, it kind of proves the point you just said, that people who want the, the understanding of that thing, they don't want to do the level of a research that I am curious, naturally curious enough to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, okay, so I'm curious, how how much time does it take to produce each newsletter? Like the kind of nitty gritty of what had to shift in your life to make time for this alongside, you know, a full-time job and everything else that you care about? Yeah, I think it's, maybe increased more because I've been putting more and more pressure on myself as the list of readers grows. I feel like I, I want it to be better and better every week. Um, so in a, in a nutshell, what I'm doing is I get a bunch of newsletters that I subscribe to. And I actually wrote a Medium post. If anybody's curious what I read, I have a Medium post that you can find through my Twitter as well um, that lists all the newsletters that I read and subscribe to. And the ones that I mainly pay attention to are a lot of the Fortune newsletters because they highlight a lot of business news. So Fortune CEO Daily, Fortune's Most Powerful Women in Business. They have a Race Ahead newsletter, which highlights diversity in business. And then I also read other things like, of course, The Skim every once in a while. And then there's some more social impact-related ones that I follow. So I, I skim through those on a daily basis, and I have like a folder. And I don't read every single one of them every day, but when I have like five minutes of downtime, I scroll and then if I have time to read articles that look relevant, I'll read it immediately or I'll save it to my pocket. Um, I use the pocket app. And then I'd say I'd do that maybe like an hour a day. And then come Sunday, if I'm doing a good job of not waiting until the last minute to send the newsletter, <laughs> I, I'm like creating the structure. I'm like copying the last newsletter and cleaning it up so that I at least have the template for the actual newsletter. So um, when I'm ready to write, I can just write. That takes me maybe about 30 minutes. and then. The bulk of the work, I'd say, is Monday night. I just don't do much on Monday evenings after work. And um, on a good day between 6 and 9, I'll get it done, 6 and 9 p.m. Um, on days where I, one, am procrastinating, <laughs> or two, I'm, like, fearful I have nothing to say, which has become more and more of a problem for me, um, kind of the self-sabotage of, like, I have nothing to, to say here. Sometimes I'll be up till midnight, which is problematic because I've been going to boot camp at 6.30, and clearly on Tuesdays I sometimes don't make it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm finding myself more and more curious lately about the like these kind of details, like how people make things happen, right? That it's yeah. I've been thinking of it, you know, really just like through the lens of my experience creating this podcast and, you know, what I think of as sort of like the Thanksgiving dinner situation where, you know, it takes you like three days to do something that everyone eats in like 20 minutes, right? Or yes. less. And that's the same thing. <laughs> like it could take someone, you know, just a couple of minutes quickly to skim or to even to read it, uh, the whole newsletter, right? That you put together and to get value from or whatever. And so sometimes I think that we forget that the time that it takes us to consume the thing is like a tiny portion of the time and resources that it actually takes to make the thing. Yes. Oh my gosh. And I think, you know, my partner, her name is Heather. She watches me go through this process every week. Um, and in one way she benefits because I joke that this newsletter is just everything that I used to talk her ear off about in an, in an email to other people now. <laughs> so she's kind of saved from listening to me rant about things, but also she has to watch me kind of 
deal with all the, the additional work that now comes with it. And she's trying to help me think about ways that I can outsource it, maybe work with other people to help me source content. And so I think as it grows, I'll get more creative and learn how to better utilize my time. Um, but it's all like a learning process. And to your point, you do this thing for hours each week. On a good week, it's maybe five to six hours of dedicated time. But, you know, it, it obviously takes up a lot of time in between everything, too. And people may or may not open it. And if they do open it, they may or may not read through the whole thing. And if they do read through the whole thing, they may or may not click through an article that I thought was just like the best article ever. And four people clicked it. You know, I'm like, oh, man. Yeah. And, you know, this is always where I get interested in also, you know, the question about money, which is something that we don't like to talk about with, I mean, art or I don't know. I mean, I don't know if art is the right catch all term, but that it's you know, that it takes like when something takes time and people are so like newsletters, for example, right? Like people are really used to getting those for free, right? So I mean, same thing with podcasts. So like, how do you think about your vision for this? Like, is this a hobby that you, you know, never want to be income producing or what are your thoughts around that? No, I love money. And I, (laughs) I definitely want to figure out how to, um, make what I'm doing, um, use this skill that I have to create information resources, that people want related to this and whether it's a newsletter or something else that I build out, um, I do want to think about what that is. And it's actually, um, I've created a mastermind group with some of my girlfriends who are working on projects as well to think that through this summer. I think honestly, I'm obsessed with the skim. Like I've read and listened to everything I possibly could about how they built it. I don't know that the model for generating revenue will be similar to theirs. I don't know if it'll be my newsletter, but I have, Honestly, I've looked at how you've built your Patreon. I've looked at other people's Patreon. I'm considering that as an option, uh, whether people want to invest in the, in the newsletter itself or something else that I um, put out there that I'm going to create. Um, but for a fact, if I continue this long term, it, it has to at least contribute more than something else I could be doing. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think this is this is probably right now, I mean, I love real talk about lots of different subjects, but this is absolutely kind of where my mind and heart is, is this, if I can do anything, I mean, with this podcast or just in general, I want to somehow change either the conversation or like the way that we think about just the things that we consume, you know, art, media, whatever, and money. And like, just to think about this idea that I don't know if it's, I mean, I think it is like partially a gendered thing too, that I have these conversations with female friends that, you know, spend so much time creating incredible art or incredible things and then have so much uh, stickiness around asking for money for it. Right. Or there's just like something there that we often don't want to do that. And I think that there can be I don't know. There's like better ways to think about it. And this idea for me, I mean, even it's funny, like thinking about like the content of your newsletter and the idea of this project of, you know, how do companies that I am probably a consumer of or have been, you know, like a customer of in the past, maybe or currently, what are they doing around the issues that I care about? And if they're doing something that isn't in line with what I care about, how is that going to shift Right. Like, am I going to am I going to stop flying United? Am I going to whatever, like really starting to think about the link between the things that you believe in and kind of then how you spend your money? Absolutely. I think, you know, I'm putting together just a bigger picture on what does above the bottom line accomplish beyond a newsletter? What could it be? And I think the big thing that keeps coming to mind is creating resources and providing information and tools that allow people to align their their money with their values. And the reason why I'm so fascinated by boycotts and, 
you know, I went to business school with this fascination around consumer behavior. How do you shift consumer behavior? Um, it's, it's rooted in exactly that. Like, how do we affect change at companies as consumers? And sometimes it's not good enough to just not spend your money there, honestly. And some boycotts lead to counter responses that make more money for the company than the boycott lost it. So how do we start to think about the next evolution of consumer engagement around these issues is, is what I am deeply curious about exploring. And I have no answers, but I'm excited about exploring the topic nonetheless. Yeah, no, I mean, but I think that that's a very honest thing to say. I'm interested in this. I have no answers, but I'm going to, you know, keep digging into yeah. it. Like that's, that's all that we can kind of expect from each other. I mean, I think I'll be very interested to see where the project goes on that front. And it's, yeah, it's just like another in a line of things that sort of push me into this, you know, you have choices with, the, you know, if you have, if you have the privilege to have choices of, you know, where you spend disposable income, if you have disposable income, right, that type of stuff yeah. that it's uh, for me, I'm trying to push myself into, uh, not expecting things to be free just because they're typically free, right? That I'm like, oh, if there's a podcast that I listen to and they sell merchandise, you know, maybe I don't need that t-shirt or whatever, but is it supporting like someone whose stuff that I'm excited to listen to every week? Or if there's a blog that I love that has a Patreon and that does like, I'm trying to push myself to be, okay, well, if you're creating this thing and you won't, you need people to support your thing, how are you supporting other creators? And just like trying to think about what's the world that I want to live in and, you know, making more intentional choices. Yeah. It's so funny. You mentioned the whole gender conversation around asking for money. (coughs) Excuse me. And, um, Austin Cleon, I don't know if I'm saying his name, but the art, the the author who wrote steal like an artist and some of those other creative books. Yeah. He, I read his newsletter and it's like 10 things every week that he shares. And he unabashedly at the end says, if you like my work, buy my book, it's linked, you know, buy a product, buy this, buy whatever. Um, and it's, it's really great because it's very clear. It's not intrusive. But when I compare that to other newsletters, I don't ever, especially the more the ones run by women, um, like Ann Friedman, for example, she has a great newsletter that I love. And she now has classifieds that you can buy. But she's not as, I think, board-facing about how you can financially support what she's doing. Um, and I, I love their podcast. Call Your Girlfriend is a great podcast because they actually break down the, the business of running their podcast and how it started as a project and how they started making money. They're very transparent about it. But it, it, you, you raise a really interesting observation that I think men are far more comfortable saying, this is how you support me and giving people ways to financially give, your, like, give them your money than some of the, the projects that I love that women create. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I, yeah, Ann Friedman's is one of the other newsletters that made the cut for me. And yeah, she has a way, it's like an annual payment, I think, that you can support her newsletter. And that was another moment where I'm like, pay for this. You read this every week and get so much value from it. Like, Uh, you can, you can afford to do this instead of doing something else or, you know, whatever. But it did, it took that like extra nudge for me. And yeah, I've been paying more attention to people's asks around money. And even I saw a woman, um, I don't remember who it was, but on Twitter recently say a writer, um, uh, basically tr- stopping herself and kind of cringing when other women who are, you know, incredible writers or creators are kind of like, I wrote a thing. Eh, here you go. Like, I hope people look at it. being like, it, you yeah. know, that it's almost this like hedging. Well, just maybe kind of being less, that's something that I'm working on a lot personally is sort of being less yeah. timid with sharing things and also more frank about it takes like 80 hours per season of work on like the podcast, right? Like to talk about that kind of stuff and that that's, that's totally fine. Like to not, it's sort of like getting over this. I don't know if it's a 
cultural gendered thing that I grew up with, but this idea that we're supposed to appear like everything's effortless, like you're just in shape and your hair just looks good and nothing takes any work. Like, no, things take work, right? Like, and and being able to have that conversation and not feel like I'm supposed to make things look like they're so easy. (laughs) Seriously. And one of the things that over the past few years and definitely in grad school, I started to do a lot more, even on Facebook was to post things that were bothering me or insecurities or kind of low moments. And I try, I, I think I overthink those more than I overthink the sharing of the positive things. Cause one, the positive comes more natural for me. Um, but two, I always worry about how people will receive the like, okay, let me explain how much it took for me to get to this place that looks really, really shiny right now. And let me talk to you about the really low points along the way. I feel really scared to post those moments online. And a part of it is because I think I don't see it enough. And then two, I worry that people, you know, every once in a while you do that, people hit you up like, are you okay? Like, girl, what's what's wrong? Like, no, 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 this is just life. Like, I'm okay. I'm just being honest about life, Um, you know, compared to last week, which everything seems so rosy and perfect. I just wanted you to know that it didn't just happen to become rosy and perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think... That's kind of the whole like through line of this podcast, right? Like, let's have real yeah. conversations about, you know, that things are hard one day and not as hard the next day and this or whatever. And just being open about that. I mean, yeah, everything that we're saying falls kind of under that bucket, I think. And it was why I loved your, your first blog. I mean, I've loved all of the stuff you've done, but I loved how raw and vulnerable you were. And you always have been. But in, in that time in my life, like I had just discovered Brené Brown and Like I was just trying to figure out what it meant to be vulnerable. And here you were kind of laying all your shit out for the world to see. And you were kind of like, yeah, it kind of feels sucky, but I'm going to be okay. And it was really nice to see it because there weren't a lot of blogs and things, at least that I had come across where people were so authentic to what their experiences were. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, it's again, back to that conversation of I think that we maybe undervalue the things that come naturally to us. Like my first response, what I want to say is, well, I don't know how to not do that. <laughs> like that's just like, I, I don't, I don't know how to not do that. I'm really, I'm really bad at small talk. I'm really bad. I like, don't know how to do it. And you know, it is funny. It's nice. Again, nice to hear. Um, so going back to you know, the, the gender thing a little bit, something yeah. that I saw, I think it was maybe on your resume that definitely piqued my interest was the major role that you played in increasing the female student population at your business school. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, it's funny because I think, I, so I ended up getting an award for it and a lot of conversations started to happen afterwards where people would call me and ask, you know, what did you guys do? Like, how did you structure yourselves? How did you start? And I think the funniest part of that whole experience is it was totally an accidental initiative. And really what led to it was an article published in the New York Times about Harvard Business School and the gender issues that they were having. And I remember the article went viral. It definitely went viral. It was my first semester in business school. And I remember a lot of my classmates feeling like, oh, phew, I'm so glad we're not like them. And a lot of the women and I looked around like, okay, well, overt sexism may not be our experience here, but like, let's not pretend that society, like societal sexism and other things don't show up every day in this environment. We might be Berkeley, but we're still not a utopia, right? And it started with a woman saying, hey, let's all just have lunch and talk about this article and how we feel about it and our experiences in the classroom. And it led to us saying, let's have another one of these. It was like a potluck. And I think by the third one, one of the women in the group was like, okay, are we going to do something about it? Or are we just going to kind of sit around and bitch about the experience in business and in business school? 
Um, and after that, we were like, all right, well, as true A-types, let's set some goals. What could a goal be? And the first one, I think, was to meet with the administration and the dean of our school. And we knew by the time we met with the dean, we had to have a perspective, a viewpoint on what we needed to be doing as a school. And we met with him that spring, and then he was immediately on board, and he started to make moves. And he was like, one of the first things we could do, low-hanging fruit, is we have a lot of female admits that we could just start reaching out to, higher touch, because one of the things that we knew was people make decisions um, based on what they understand the culture of the school to be and the amount of people that they have a chance to really speak to about their experience. So he was like, let's have female alumni call and congratulate our female admits. Let's let's be very intentional that there's an extra touch point for those candidates. And by that summer, we found out that we had gone from 29% um, women in the, the last incoming class or my class that year to um, 43% in the next class. And it was really exciting, obviously, because we had no idea that we would have such immediate results. Um, we did that among a lot of other smaller initiatives as well. So it wasn't just about the phone calls. But that was like the most very forward-facing um, initiative that we, we were able to roll out. But the part that was actually scary was, is this a fluke? Did we do this? Was this real? And so coming out of that experience, we decided to be more structured, more formal. We grouped ourselves into um, very specific groups, one focused on academics, one focused on the culture, and one focused on um, academics, culture... I can't even remember what the third one is. It seems like so long ago now. I was on the academic one. Um, and we did independent studies, each with different professors who were um, focused on that topic. And we did surveys, we did interviews, focus groups, and we started to dig into like, what is the current baseline and more formally structure ourselves. So really what became this like very official, organized, structured, administrative supported effort started out with just a group of women wanting to talk about an article that felt more relevant than most of our classmates felt it, it actually was to them. Oh, I, okay. There's so much that I love about what you just shared, especially this, like that story is so helpful in breaking the myth that you have to have like, you know, if you're going to make a significant change that it has to, the idea has to come out fully formed, right? Like this is what it's going to look like. This is the committee. This is the action, you know, and yeah. that can feel really intimidating when often that's many steps down the line. Like I feel like any change that's ever happened in any organization, in a family, in like in anything starts out with basically one person saying to another person, like, what's up with this? Let's talk about this. Which, <laughs> like, Absolutely. There's, I, I forget about that. I forget that there's so much power in like grabbing a couple of girlfriends and being like, mm, let's discuss, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's funny. We had a bunch of people who, when we decided to like make it more formal, were like, I don't really have time for that. I really like this as a safe space to just talk about what I was feeling. And you know, that was great too. But so they ended up being not part of the more official group, but they were absolutely a part of the motivation and the intention behind what we did. And then along the way, we lost people in the sense that they decided that they wanted to work on other issues that were important to them. And they felt like the core group had it handled because the more people you have, the harder it is sometimes to actually affect change. And so the people involved um, even evolved over time. And largely because we evolved in our mission and what we were trying to accomplish every few months. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I I mean, I know that, I mean, we're talking specifically about business school, but I know that 
this kind of topic of women in business is something that you're really passionate about. I mean, I'd love to, and obviously that's, that's huge, right? Like women in business, what even is that? That's like, could be a million thousand different conversations, right? But I don't know. I'd love for you to maybe share stories of a few experiences, maybe in your own life and career that sort of helped to develop the passion. Like when you say that you're, you know, really passionate about women in business, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Well, so first of all, my mom, um, my parents are immigrants to this country and my mom came to America, left her three kids back home in Barbados with her mother to come to America, get a job and put herself through school. And then she ended up meeting my dad in the late seventies, early eighties. And, you know, they had me, but then my sisters came to America and I grew up in this home with just all these women. It was all these women and my dad, right? So I always watched really powerful, strong women. My eldest sister studied microbiology and went on to work at a pharmaceutical company. My second eldest sister, she was a CPA and accountant, then went to law school, got past the bar on the first try, just like brilliant. My third sister's in technology and kind of has always held her own in like the physical um, part of technology. She loves working with her hands on computers. And so like I just I saw these women and it was always clear to me that like I could do whatever I wanted to do. And back home in the Caribbean, a lot of my family members are entrepreneurs. And um, especially on my mom's side, almost all of them have businesses. And so when I went into the workforce, I started my career at Deloitte. I was in a group of analysts that were almost 50-50 women to men, but I was the only black woman and I was one of two black analysts. And I was the only one who ended up completing the program. And I was sitting in rooms with a lot of white men. I was working for clients. There were a lot of white men. And I actually had the pleasure of having my first boss, my first two bosses be women. And they were phenomenal. And I I remember thinking like, this experience is really cool, but it feels like not normal. And it wasn't until I started to like move, I moved on from that job. I went into the nonprofit sector, which was very much dominated by women And then decided I wanted to come back in business. And I started to look at business schools. I started to look at where people were going after business school. And it was just like, this is not cool. Like, the higher up I go, the less women I seem to be interacting with. And I just felt like it was one of those things where my gift is really building community. It's really around thinking about um, what things could be and working with people to try to get there. And so when I got to business school, it was a very natural, like, the feminist inclination of mine, like I'd always worked in, in feminist kind of volunteer work as a rape crisis counselor, or I, I taught a female empowerment course in DC before business school. It felt like the ne- next natural progression of my work was, okay, well, while I am in business, I can have a very tangible uh, impact on this work and this mission. Um, and it's also very topical more than ever in my career, for sure. Um, we're talking about it. We're talking about the numbers. We're talking about the problem. We're talking about the actual financial impact on a company by not doing the work necessary to to have gender equity. And it was like a no-brainer for me to make sure that every step of the way I was engaged in that conversation. Yeah, so this might seem like a strange question um, or kind of broad, but I'm just curious from your experience of what works or what's worked for you, maybe some things that you think that, either women can do or that you would love to see women do to lift each other up more, especially in the workplace? Yeah. You know what? I will say what I don't like, because that's the first thing that came to mind. I really get, I get on a soapbox about the conversations around what women should do. 
Um, I think there's always things that everybody could do, period, right? To be better professionals, to be better at their work, to have a better impact. I don't think that's a gendered idea. I think we've gotten into this place, and I, I think Lean In kind of heightened that conversation around how do women fix the issue. And I think we've skewed too far that way. Like yeah. the confidence gap pisses me off. Like I hate when people talk about the confidence gap as like the root of problems related to women executives, right? Because first and foremost, research shows like, again, when we say women, who are we talking about? Are we talking about white women? Are we talking about underrepresented women of color? Because research actually shows that black women lean in and have been leaning in for their entire lives, right? For history, we've been working. And what the research actually shows that women, black women um, seek and want executive level positions at a higher rate than white women, for example. Mm. Um, So when we talk about things like the confidence gap, I feel like it gives people an excuse to think about the systemic issues in the company that might be leading to why, you know, certain women don't show up the way they do, why certain women don't negotiate, like the whole conversation around when you get a job, you need to negotiate. Well, there's actual research that shows that when women negotiate, there is a significant backlash, right? So this isn't made up in our heads. This is something that we systemically experience. And if you feel like you need the job, chances are you may not feel like you can negotiate. So what can a company do to make sure that that's not an an experience that women have? I wish that that was the basis of the conversation more than what should women be doing, because there are a lot of things we can do. But a lot of times, a lot of women like are not in the position I might be in where I feel comfortable negotiating because I know that I can seek another job or I feel comfortable speaking my mind because honestly, it's who I am and it's always been natural for me. But what if it's not natural for you and the few times you did it, somebody shut you down or you got demoted or you got kind of blackballed, right? Like, why would you do it again? Yeah, no, that's brilliant. It's it's funny what you mentioned about lean in and sort of the conversation going more that way, even subconsciously to the point where that's how I thought to phrase the question, right? <laughs> this idea yeah. of it's almost like another form of oppression where we take on the role of responsibility of having to fix the problem that we didn't create. <laughs> like, I think the only thing we need to do is share our stories. Like obviously, if we don't share those experiences, then how do we find out how to fix them? But it absolutely is not our responsibility to fix them. And individually fixing them is not going to solve the systemic issue of oppression, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and what you said before about having the privilege to negotiate, right, or to go somewhere else or to do, it's something that uh, comes up a lot in conversations too around like sexual harassment, right, or things like that of, well, you know, why didn't she just speak up three years ago or why? Well, because not everyone can walk away from their job, right? Like the amount of privilege to be able to to go through that experience. And I don't know, it's what my mom always called, you know, whether or not you have fuck you money to be like, fuck you on out, right? Like not everybody has that. Most people don't. And honestly, even with that, like, let's say you have that level of privilege. If the career is giving you more than it's not like that experience, you, you know, you still have to weigh your the cost of it. And is it really worth walking away and using that fuck you money for that? Maybe, you know, there's like so many things you're going to experience in your career. And maybe that wasn't the worst thing you've experienced. And you you just want to be ready for the next shit show. 
I don't know. Like everyone's yeah. also entitled to that choice as well. No, I love that. I love because you're bringing up something that I feel really passionate about is that there's nuance in everything, that it's really easy, especially as an outside observer of a situation, to make everything like a yes, no, black, white, hot button issue, right? Of like there's only, there's one right answer, right? Or if X happens that you have to follow these specific steps or why wouldn't anyone do that? Or why wouldn't you speak up or stand up? Or why wouldn't you quit immediately? Or well, like to your point, it just because one bad thing happens doesn't mean it's all bad, right? There's like degrees of things. And again, like back to giving each other space to make mistakes, we have to leave room for there to be like a nuanced gray area because that's what real life is. Totally. And it, it, I've been having this conversation related to above the bottom line and what I want it to be versus what I don't want it to be. One of the things I, I really want to root this project in is that there isn't always black and white. I think there are situations that companies um, their actions they take, their decisions they make that are egregious, right? And so it's clearly wrong. Like United having that passenger removed was clearly wrong. I think that there's no ne- negotiation in that conversation. But I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of gray area. And each of us have decided where our line in the sand is around a lot of issues. And my line doesn't have to be your line, right? I think it's clear when it's unethical and it's immoral But within that gray area, you should be able to make the choices that you want to make along with your values. And one of the things that I would like to to make sure that Above the Bottom Line does is that it gives people the information that they need to decide whether something meets their expectations versus telling people what their expectations should be. Mm -hmm. Unless, and I will never shy away from if I think something is completely wrong, because I'm entitled to my viewpoint as well, but... I don't want this to be one of those tools. I think a lot of times in the environmental space, I feel this way, where companies are bad, period, and they will be bad because they do these things. Like Walmart. I don't shop at Walmart. I don't really want to support them as a consumer. However, I do recognize that when they make very small changes to either their supply chain, who they source their products from, like if they source more products from women, or if they like even change their carbon footprint just a little bit, um, it has a huge impact on the world because of their scale. Yeah. And does how do we decide what makes them good or bad? And I don't know, I, I've just been playing with this in my head. Like companies are made up of people. Systems are made up of people. And people aren't often all good or all bad. Therefore, how can a company be all good or all bad? And how do we create space for them to be chastised when they do bad, but also recognize when they do good? Yeah, I, oof, that was so good. Everything you just said, I'm just like, yep, yep. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's, uh, what do I even want to say? Everything, I just want to like not aggressively to everything, <laughs> just like preach forever. Um, but it's, it's so important to, and I mean, for sure, this is something I mean, I could work on and I know that I'm not alone in that, that it's so easy to have this like knee jerk emotional reaction to things. I mean, and that's so much of what's happening even on social media these days, right? Of this like kind of like vitriolic echo chamber yelling of things that I am for sure guilty of, right? Like definitely. And that's fine. And like, there's a place for rage and all of that, but like how much actually gets changed if we're not willing to have messier conversations. Absolutely. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of interesting debate around voicing or exiting. And so that comes from like the investor space. So big institutional investors, like big organizations that manage pension funds, like CalPERS manages the pension funds of a lot of teachers and public government workers in California, for instance, they manage trillions of dollars. Their viewpoint is that when a company isn't doing something right, 
that they they will use their voice versus exit in terms of withdrawing their money. And the principle there is if we withdraw our money, it's so much money that it has a profound impact on the stock market, which actually therefore starts to harm the people we're supposed to be protecting their money. Because now the market starts to go crazy, the investments don't have the same level of return, and these people may not have the level of pension that they, they deserve when they retire. So our responsibility is to use our power and our resources, these trillion dollars of assets that we, that we handle as power to influence companies to make different and better decisions. And, you know, in business school, we had very heated debates around if that's the right approach. And I think at the end of the day, it's like, okay, well, you get to decide what is the right approach for you. And you get to decide when you have that kind of choice, what choice you would make. And maybe even have a conversation with others about why you think it was the wrong choice. But I do think that multiple ways of engaging are critical to decision, to things being changed. Like companies don't just change because government, I mean, because um, consumers are boycotting. It also, I think there's just so many layers around what affects change and it requires so many different types of actions. It requires so many different types of people to kind of push and build the momentum in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, this reminds me even, I mean, at the time of this recording, you know, in the last week or so, the conversations that have been happening around, you know, people speaking out and, you know, unsubscribing from the New York Times over, I'm, I'm blanking on the person's name, but a columnist that they hired that is, I mean, I don't know that climate change denier is the right word, but it's something mm-hmm. like it's something in that space. And just kind of watching some of the more thoughtful people in my timeline, right, on Twitter talking about, you know, that you can speak out against something without, you know, um, automatically withdrawing your subscription, you know, canceling your subscription, not that canceling your subscription is wrong, if that, did, you know, but like that there is a more nuanced thing here. Absolutely. And just like leaving, I mean, I think there's no, there's no correct answer, right? We're both just talking about this idea of just like leaving space for there to be more options and for people to make decisions differently. And for, you know, for someone, maybe the right thing is, okay, I'm going to cancel. I'm going to put my money somewhere else for someone else. It might be something different, but that it's not, I don't know that it's not a simple thing. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, I struggle with defining my line in the sand and that's when I'm like, I spend most of my energy deciding like, what is my line? You know, like when I think about Trump and companies, I really hate that companies are working with him. I really hate that they think that sitting at the table is going to have an influence. But I also, intellectually, I understand that decision. I just hate it because I feel like he's not really listening to anybody who's saying something that is different than what he already believes. I don't believe he's that kind of person. And therefore, I don't believe making choices to protect your seat at that table is going to benefit society at large. However, you know, there are times where and there are leaders that, have made that decision. I'm like, well, maybe you could influence change, you know, maybe you might, but I don't know. I, I struggle more so when I haven't decided exactly how hard my line is in, in that sand. And I don't want people to feel like, you know, I can't make a, a choice of my own because I'm really good at seeing all sides of issues. So I struggle, I'd say more with that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a great thing to dig into a little bit. So I'm curious I mean, it doesn't have to just be related to since you started doing the newsletter, because I know that you've been interested in the content that you put in your newsletter for a while. But has there ever been a point where you came across something in your research or, you know, about a certain company that you did change your behavior or like spending or, you know, because of something that you kind of came across in putting together the newsletter? Oh, good question. Um,
I can't, it's all like a blur. Like all of them are such a blur at this point. Um, but what's interesting, so in the most recent week, Shea Moisture is a, a beauty brand and like a hair care brand. And they had this huge, I mean, not as huge as Pepsi had in terms of backlash um, or even Nivea, but they had a huge backlash last week because they produced these ads that were focused on hair hate and they did not feature any black women. And if you know anything about Shea Moisture, they were built as a natural hair product at the time where there were very few natural hair products for black women. And they worked very closely with black beauty bloggers, specifically on YouTube, to build their brand and their presence. And the backlash was very visible in Swift because a lot of these black women who are beauty bloggers with big platforms were very angry with them for producing an ad that ignored the really unique experience of having natural naturally kinky, coily hair. And I, while it didn't change my behavior in the sense that I wasn't a consumer of their product necessarily before, like I bought my first product of theirs two weeks ago um, based on a friend's recommendation, I can't say that like when I go back looking for a similar product, I'm going to pick up their thing. And it's not like, it's not a huge issue that I care deeply about, but I also know that there are other brands that care and are more thoughtful around who their consumers are that I'd rather give my money to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a small, more recent example I wish I could say I don't fly United, but I have a lot of airline points and (laughs) I literally would had just booked a flight um, with my airline points through United. um, And I tend to use whichever airline I can get the best deal. I would love to say that I won't fly them again after this flight. But I think for me, I don't know if I have the financial resources to consistently make that decision based on where United flies. Mm. I love your honesty. It's so, this is it, right? Like the, the messy truth of being human is that we are constantly needing to, like you said, really check in with ourselves about where our line is. And it's not just one line. It's lots of lines based on lots of different issues and based on where we are in a cycle of privilege at any given time, right? Like maybe there's a time where you will be in a financial situation where you can just say, okay, I'm just not going to fly United, for example, right? Or exactly, exactly. And, but I think like, this is what's so beautiful to me about people being like, here's what's true for me, which is exactly what you're doing that it's, I don't know, it gives sometimes I feel like in this climate of, it seems to me that we're in a climate uh, and maybe we have been for a while and I just haven't been paying as much attention that there's always only two options, right? Like it's you support this person or this person, right? I mean, like based on like two party system, but like, even with these kind of things, like you spend your money there, you don't, which is true for sure, but that there is so much stuff, like so much smaller stuff. Like I remember (laughs) this is like, I guess like maybe a small example, but a personal example. It took Mm -hmm. me a really long time of being dissatisfied with what Wells Fargo was doing before starting the process of actually changing banks. Right. Oh my gosh. That it was like whatever that was a year or two ago of, you know, they opened all those fraudulent accounts. Right. And then it was that happened and then something else happened. And then it was the, them funding the Dakota access pipeline that for me was like, yeah, I'm out. I'm, but even then it's like, it's a lot to switch banks. And then you have to all the things that are the auto pay, which yes, first world problems for sure. But like, these are the, the like things, the obstacles to change. And like, even that felt like a big decision of like, are they, are they violating what I believe enough that I'm going to make this change? And then also having to deal with the story of, well, I'm just one person. Like if I make a change, does it even matter? Yes. You make me think of two things. So going back to your point around like, it feels like either I support them with my money or I don't. Um, an example of me stopping um, using a brand almost completely, I don't use Uber. And 
Uber, I, I live in the Bay Area, and so I have a lot more options. Like Lyft is pretty convenient here. However, it's still not more convenient than Uber generally, and sometimes it's not cheaper. But I have deleted the app. However, when I travel, especially to countries where I don't speak the language, Uber is really the only thing that allows me to get around effectively. And that is a very painful thing when I have to re-download the app because I, on principle, do not want to support that company until I feel like they have done something fundamentally different. Like they've egregiously violated things that I think are core values, multiple, like they probably hit a dozen headlines at this point, even in just in 2017 of reasons why you shouldn't support them. Um, so it's interesting because like I end up giving them my money, but only overseas. And that's because the pain point of having to figure out how to navigate a city without speaking the language is way higher than the pain I feel of supporting them with my dollars. Mm, yeah. And then the other, the other thing I, I was thinking about is like how you switch Wells Fargo. I switched from Bank of America last year. And granted, I've been banking with Bank of America since I was in college. And I think for me, it was more so I felt like the times of my life where I was poorest were the times they exploited me the most. And so I was just like, you know, when I finally start to make the money, the last place I want to give it is Bank of America. So I spent all summer in that painful process you just described of changing banks. And even opening up a local credit union here. That's in what Oakland. I did too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I was speaking to my partner's uncle, who's very involved in union work. And um, we jokingly call him Mandela because he's like for the people, by the people kind of guy. And he and I were talking once I started the newsletter. He informed me that he still shops at Walmart and he still banks at Wells Fargo. And it blew my mind, Nicole. Like I was just like, this one person who I thought was the most intentional about how he spends his money and who he supports because he's all about the people and you know Walmart barely started to give a, a living wage and like clearly you wouldn't shop at Walmart and he was just like I just don't believe that consumer boycotts matter so you know I know it looks bad please don't hate me for it but like I actually still support these businesses and maybe one day I'll change and maybe you can change my mind but that's not where I feel my impact is best had and that kind of like shook me up a little bit and had made me rethink what I really believe um, affects the kind of change that I want to see. Yeah. Well, I, I love something. I mean, and you said it just in passing, but about Uber, you said something to the effect of, you know, that you're not going to use them consistently, like until, you know, such point as big changes are made, right? Or whatever, you yeah. phrased it better than that. But even that, like that's a nuanced position that I oftentimes don't take, or I think a lot of people don't take is giving someone another chance, right? Or that like, if they do correct the things that, you know, you don't like, why would you not reward that by then going back to that company? Or like, it's just, it's yeah. kind of like we treat some of these issues in a way that we would hopefully never treat our loved ones, right? Like if someone makes a mistake or even a couple mistakes, like, yeah, maybe of course there is a point where you cut someone out of your life, but there's a, usually a lot more conversation that happens around that. And yet we're not willing, like the standards are all of a sudden different when it's a company, which I mean, of course they are, but <laughs> just my point being that this whole thing is like, is messy and interesting. And a lot of it, I feel like comes back to just having to check in with yourself. And I mean, even to that point about, you know, uh, was you, you said it was your partner's uncle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, you know, okay, well, this isn't how I can make the biggest impact, even that, right. Or like what we were saying at the very beginning of the conversation of how to decide what to talk about on social media, yeah. right. This thing versus this other thing is that there is a process of, I have to decide like where I can have the most impact based on what I care about. And that's going to probably mean making some choices that somehow hurt someone somewhere at some point, right. Like that Absolutely. it's, <laughs> I don't know, like you can't live a perfect, whatever that means life. Yeah. And the other thing too, I mean, you think about, okay, like, People are like, oh, I just wish Uber as a company would die. You know, like you, you were kind of hoping for their failure. 
And I think there's a, like a vindictive side of me that wishes that. But realistically, I also know a lot of people who work there. I know that, you know, in terms of the economy, there are people who may not have be able to get, I don't know, like we don't, there are people who work there and whose lives depend on the success of the company. And I think that there are a lot of rotten eggs in that company. And I think the leadership is um, fueling that. But I also know for a fact that everyone isn't that way. And if we wish the demise of this company, um, you know, barring we destroy capitalism completely, which is a whole separate conversation. Right. Then you have people who are whose real lives are affected. And so like wishing the demise of the company also means wishing ill for the people who would be first to be impacted and honestly be longer term impacted, which are usually the marginalized groups who struggle the most. Um, so I don't wish that on the people who have less power in that situation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's something right in that vein that's changed for me, which might again seem like a small thing, but my husband works for Twitter. And, you know, every once in a while, there's like the hailstorm of people complaining about Twitter and they're terrible because XYZ, not at a company level for the reasons with Uber that you're talking about or not really, but more just like the platform or just in general. And I'm like, yeah, but he's a real person that like is trying to do good work than like all the people that, you know, all his colleagues are the same. But it's, yeah, to your point that there's always, it's always more complicated. And I, that's something that I'm really trying to work on this year is just like pushing myself to take a moment of pause and like not have maybe such an intense emotional reaction and just like, (laughs) which is listen, easier said than done for sure, you know, but, and to just, to just think about it a little more. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my goals has been to like formulate those thoughts around the nuance and not feel like every time I see both sides of the issue, I'm just copping out, you know, which I think a lot of times I feel, um, and to more publicly kind of write about those things. So one of my goals is to write op-eds and record videos, which terrify me because these are going to be things out in the world that now people can critique at really deep, you know, meaningful levels. And so for me, that the, the fear is around like working through putting those viewpoints out there, more nuanced viewpoints, but very strong, con- well-considered viewpoints. Yeah, no. I mean, go for it. I'm into it. I want to know all of your viewpoints. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So completely separate topic. Um, mm-hmm. How did you and Heather meet? Oh, my gosh. So funny. We met on Twitter. Oh, okay. Tell me that story. <laughs> so uh, long story short, while I was working at Deloitte, I was applying for the Peace Corps and I was specifically, I knew I was going to West Africa and I started following this blogger who was in the Peace Corps in West Africa, who knew Heather um, because she had spent time volunteering in Cameroon. So she knew of Wendy's, this woman's blog um, because it helps you prepare to go overseas. And so we all knew each other online. That woman came in town one day and was like, hey, you know, it's been two years since we've been friends online. Let's all like meet up for lunch. And we all ended up meeting up. And um, she did not really like me. It's so funny. Like when she met me, she thought it was so intense because I thought her job was really cool. And I get into like really like work mode, questioning people about what they do and how they do it and how do I get into it. She was doing work for the UN Foundation um, around their girls campaigns. And I just thought it was the coolest job ever. But I left that meeting knowing that like she wasn't really going to be friends with me. But a year later, she was looking for a roommate I, you know, had a friend who was looking for a roommate as well. I connected them. And from that point on, she started just like hitting me up all the time, saying that she wanted to thank me. But I was kind of like, do you really want to thank me or are you trying to hang out? (laughs) And we spent like nine months of doing that of me kind of like avoiding her. And then honestly, how she hooked me in was I didn't have cable at the time and she had cable and 
I loved the show Scandal, especially that first year, those first couple years. And so she would invite me over to watch Scandal. And I was like, okay, she's got me. So we started to spend more time together. And then towards the end of that year, this is back in 2011, um, we just increasingly started to spend time together and then became inseparable slowly. Shonda Rhimes bringing people together. I know, I know. Well, Twitter and Shonda Rhimes, yeah. isn't that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> That's an awesome story. I. <laughs> and if you, it's funny because we, we love telling it to friends because we have very different versions and hers is made up of mostly um, fake news. So <laughs> it's hilarious because her story gets more and more outlandish every year. And one day I want to do like a storytelling series where partners tell the version of how they met and especially partners who have different versions. I think that would be a lot of fun. That would be an awesome like short podcast. Oh, actually, that's even better idea because they could record it separately and not hear each other's versions. That's a really cool idea. Oh my gosh, different. <laughs> okay, now let now I want to like run with this idea. That would be so. <laughs> and it doesn't even. I mean, on how they met, but on anything, right? Where they just yeah. like the same. Well, I'm really interested. This is a complete tangent, but I'm really interested in um, kind of the. I don't know if science is the right word, but like the science of memory and like just how imperfect our own, even our own memory of our own lives, right? Or like just how our brains are just like, really, we can't do it. And so that would be really interesting to me, like two different people who experienced the same event. So first of all, like the differences in memory and then just the differences in that, like you bring to a thing, like who you are is brought into the thing, right? And you can't separate that. So hearing about the same thing from two people's, dude, that would be awesome. Oh man. Oh man. Maybe that's the next project. We can In case you on. don't have enough to do. <laughs> <laughs> that would that's be okay. so funny. So you've been together for a while now, right? What is that? Four years, five years? No, it passes by. We're not good with anniversaries. So we generally just say Thanksgiving ish. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'm also always curious about sort of real talk around people's relationships and just, yeah. I don't even know what I want to ask around here, but anything that you want to talk about either like things that have changed or how you've changed through the relationship or maybe something that was a real challenge that you two had to work through. Yeah. When I love talk, I love that you asked this because I love talking to friends about relationships. I think one of the biggest things I've learned is that healthy relationships are harder than unhealthy relationships. And I say that because in my experience, at least Um, With unhealthy relationships, it's easy to not talk about things. It's easy to not think that something is important enough to deal with. Whereas in our relationship, we spend a lot of time talking about even the smallest things that upset each other. And I think part of that has been because we, we, we spend a lot of time in therapy. That's like the best thing that's happened to us. Linda is our therapist. We tell everybody about her. And we joke that she's the first person, if we ever get married, who will be on the invite list because she's literally our reason. And, you know, we initially went to her because of problems. And then we continued to just set up regular, at least monthly meetings with her because we felt like we we started to build the tools for communication. We we both like struggled with communication independently. So together it was a big challenge. But what we found is even after we had done a lot of work to build the right tools, we would still find ourselves in conversations or situations where we like kind of maxed out what we could do in a healthy way. And so we'd get to that barrier and then we'd be like, you know what, this is not going to be fixed. Let's, let's talk about it with Linda when we see her next week or whatever. It was always a safe space to say, let's not turn this into a really unhealthy situation. Let's kind of recognize that we've hit our limit and let's bring it back up with somebody we both trust and feel comfortable, you know, working through it with. And I think that was really transformational for us. 
Um, and now we actually find ourselves in situations more often than not that when we go to Linda, we're actually reviewing things that we worked through and talking about, you know, what could have been different or what we could have improved. But there, there aren't as many placeholder, like, I don't want to talk about this with you anymore. I need Linda to, to finish this. Um, and I think that's been really rewarding for us. Yeah, something I've never gone to therapy with a partner or with someone else, but I have, of course, on my own. And one of my favorite things about that experience, one of the most helpful things about that experience was sort of exactly what you described, that it was almost like having sort of an escape hatch or like a pressure valve of, okay, well, I know that, you know, Thursday at 2 p.m. I'm going to have someone to talk to about this, right? That it was like, it like helps to stop some of the spiraling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it also, you know, for me, I shut down and like, I like to, I like to avoid conflict, but it's easy for me. And it became like an easy thing to do in the relationship. Like I can't talk about this anymore. And so it was like, I knew that then I had to bring it back up. There was a space to bring it back up. And she felt comfortable not pressing me deeper and deeper into the issue because she knew that it would come back up again. I wasn't going to pretend it never happened as a conversation. Um, and and I, when I think about like why all of this even matters, I had this amazing conversation with a friend of mine just this week. And I asked him, like, what's the most important thing for you this year that you're working on? Like, what do you really feel like you're, you're going to put your energy toward? And he was like, to be honest, investing in my marriage, because the more I invest in her, the more she invests in me, the more that we are there for one another, the more we can live out the fullness of our potential, the more we can have an impact in the work that we're doing. And when I think about why this relationship has been such a beautiful experience in my life, I think that I have been my best self. And largely it's because I think we help each other show up in more powerful ways then when I was alone, I, I felt like I showed up by myself. Yeah. I want to go back to something that you said before about, you know, working with Linda to build certain communication tools. Have there been any like actual tools or kind of like tactical things that have really helped your relationship? <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm really bad at emotions. I know, ha- I know joy, I know anger and I know sadness. Those are like the three that I, I act- I can identify in my brain. Um, and one of the things that we have worked through is me being able to communicate exactly what I'm feeling. And so it sounds really cheesy. And I think, you know, some people may not feel like it's that impactful, but she has this deck of cards with actual emotions on them. And so sometimes when I'm in this place where I can't describe what I feel or what I want to feel, um, I literally would just kind of go through the cards and pull out the ones that feel right. And they have like pretty pictures on them. So they kind of like kind of paint the emotion Um, in the picture. And I feel like that's been a very practical thing because she can't respond to my need unless I can communicate my need. That's brilliant. This deck of cards sounds amazing. Oh my God. I'm happy to send the link and you can put it in the show notes because it's amazing. Yeah. I would love to do that. That's, I mean, this could be a whole other conversation, right? Like digging into relationship stuff, which I think I'm going to challenge myself to do more on the podcast because it's such such a common human thing, right? That again, I think this is a really easy thing to not have real talk around, right? Like just Absolutely. everything's shiny, right? And you're not saying, oh, but secretly everything's the worst, right? Like again, it's not this like one or the other thing. Like it's kind of like a both and, right? Yeah. But just that idea of what you said initially that healthy relationships are a lot harder and take a lot more work, right? Than unhealthy relationships. I've never heard it put quite like that, but it's so true. I mean, I think that's true with lots of different situations, right? In order to be a healthy situation, 
that doesn't just happen by accident. And I think that's a lot of, especially when we talk about relationships, and I think most especially when we talk about romantic relationships, that that's the story. That's the myth, right? That it's just, it just is. Mm, I don't know anyone for whom that's true. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm very conscious of how people receive our relationship. Like, because we, we take a lot of selfies. We're both really smiley and joyful people by nature. And so I think sometimes people start to think, oh, they're just so perfect. And it's like, oh, no, honey, like, you don't know what happened last night when Heather was like, we need to talk about this. And we're both not arguers or yellers. So it's not like we get in these fights, but they're very emotional conversations where honestly, I just want to disappear and forget that I need to even talk about any of it. And the reality is I sit there and I do it because I'm invested for the long haul. And she, I know, is invested for the long haul. And once we're done, it's going to be better. So it's like this painful emotional experience that I force myself to go through because it's worth it. Not that it happens easily and we wake up smiling every day and we don't have, you know, really stressful conversations together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So something that's, I guess, uh, an intersection point between, you know, what we've talked about, about, you know, your relationship and also work. How do you think about, I mean, I hate to use the phrase work-life balance because I feel like it's like so overused, but just like, you know, we were talking before about how you've made time, you know, for your newsletter in addition to your full-time job and everything else. And I'd love to dig deeper into how you choose your priorities, like how you manage your time individually as a couple, like how does that actually, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, it's so interesting. I feel like in business school, you were forced to ruthlessly prioritize your time because there were like at least four or five options for how you could spend any hour of the day. Um, and so it became a little bit more like muscle memory of like saying yes to the things that would have the biggest impact um, on the outcome that I wanted to achieve. I think since grad school and my work life, um, I've had, I felt less stressed about it. But I will say I feel the most stressed around my social and like my social commitments. And I feel that way largely because part of it is guilt. So while I was in grad school, I kind of like was just, I just disappeared from the face of the earth. Like if anything was not about grad school or that community, I kind of didn't know what was happening. And so when I came out of it, I think I overcompensated by wanting to spend all of the time with all of the people I had not talked to or seen before. And I felt guilty saying no to friends who invited me to things that I would have reasonably had an excuse before, but now the only excuse is I just want to stay home and read a book by myself. Um, so I think with work, my work is generally not so stressful that it comes into my personal life. And I think at, in, at Cisco in particular, because I work with a lot of people who have families and kids and because we work remotely and we do, we build collaboration technology that fuels, you know, I think more effective working. I find that people are very respectful of personal time. Um, And if you have a conflict with like a doctor's appointment or whatever it is, I have never had a situation where I wasn't told go do it because there was an understanding that at the end of the day, the work would get done. So I feel no stress around that. I think in my personal life, Heather and I tend to look at our calendars for the week and see, you know, what we have together, when we can cook, things like that. And then the challenge and the conflict generally is like, I want to see these friends or there's that event and I end up overbooking myself. And as a very social person, but very introverted person in that I need a lot of alone time to recoup, I tend to to say yes to more social things than I really should. And then I find myself um, flaking out. So one of the ways I fix that is I generally don't book social things on weekends. 
especially Saturdays, because I find myself dreading it when I really just want to stay home, watch TV, maybe go to brunch with Heather or walk around the lake or something like that. And so that's kind of been one of the ways I give myself space to say no, unless it's something I know won't be scheduled for another four months. If we don't do it on a Saturday or a Sunday, I will almost always avoid a weekend social interaction with people who aren't like really, really close family, really, really close friends. Yeah. I feel like for me, I, there was a period of time in my life where I was super overscheduled. Right. And then, like you said, like would flake out on things or like resent the things or whatever. And then as often happens with change, you sort of overcorrect in the other direction, right? Mm -hmm. Like too much. And I feel like now it's very easy for me to get stuck in my own little bubble of work and reading and personal passions. Right. And especially, I mean, my husband and I both work from home. We both Mm -hmm. really, I mean, we just, we spend a lot of time together. We like spending a lot of time together. I know that's not, you know, every couple situation, but you know, it's very important to us to have lunch together, you know, to, we cook dinner together basically every night. So like for me to make plans that are going to mean that we don't get to have dinner together at home, like it's got to be something that like basically I can't say no to. Right. So it's like, I have all these things in my life that I really love, but then it doesn't leave that much space for kind of other friends or prioritizing community or just, it's almost like I forget to reach out to people and to, well, I mean, like I'm just obviously choosing not to have that be like such a priority, which then often means that I feel lonely or it's, it's just like an interesting thing to navigate of, you know, everything's so great. And I have all these things that I'm really excited about, but then again, like the healthy situations don't just happen by accident. You're not just going to like wake up and have this like wonderful community of like local friends and people to do stuff with. Like it takes effort like anything else. And I don't know why that that for me is always the thing that the effort, you know, other people say the first thing to go for them is, you know, exercising, right. When they get busy or whatever, for me, it's like social stuff or community stuff. And yet I'm not happy when that happens, but I mean, that's just like honest, real talk of like, that's always the first thing to go or the thing that I'm like the most hesitant to schedule. Yeah. And I think to your point, like everybody has something that ends up falling off, right? Like you, something gives ultimately and everybody kind of looks different. And I think to your point around like loneliness and, and seeing the reaction of it, I remember like that first year out of grad school when I recorrected and I only spent time with people who I wasn't in grad school with. Um, I started to see all of my grad school friends hanging out. Like these people that I spent such an intense amount of time with now stopped inviting me to things because I stopped showing up to things, right? And I started to feel like really upset about that. And I almost felt like, you know, do I care about those people if I don't show up for those things? And the reality was I do care about those people, but the the people that I'm reconnecting with and I'm building deeper chips with are the people who've been here even longer in my life. Mm -hmm. And they're the people that I know will be here even longer in my life. And the other experiences were just as powerful, but maybe they, they won't shape the future as much as they did those two years, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's clear to me that you're a really thoughtful and intentional person, which is something that I for sure aspire to that this kind of like, just like thinking through like with the base acceptance that we can't do all the things, right? And we can't be all the things to all people. So, okay, having to evaluate which relationship is more important to me, which maybe sounds harsh, but like is the only way that's how we, you know? So I guess I'm curious if there's anything, and I don't mean like a specific person or specific relationship, but like, is there anything that you've consciously decided like not to do or prioritize lately? Like what's not important to you? Um. I don't know if there's a category for it, but I think going back to your point where it sounds bad, but you end up prioritizing some relationships more than others. There are people I've said no and told them I like shared my limited availability with over the past year that it has led to me not seeing them. Um, 
that I feel really guilty about, but I also know is really the best choice. I, Cause I feel like I'm saying you don't matter as much when it's not what I feel in, in terms of their value in my life, but really my time, when I think about my time, my time, like me spending my time, even just looking at my four walls, let's say I choose to do nothing in that hour is more important to my mental health and emotional health than going to grab a drink with that person. Um, I'd say like, I've been making more of those kinds of choices with people I think are really cool and really dope. And I feel, you know, maybe even saw our friendship deeper than I saw it. And now I'm making a very intentional and kind of direct communication to them saying that that's not the case. I like, I still feel like shit when I do that. And that's the thing that I've been working on more and more of like being very direct about my availability and prioritizing my alone time more than um, seeing people who I feel like I should see. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'd say there's more of that category and the people who fall into it come from all parts of my life. Yeah. And it it doesn't mean that they're bad people. (laughs) It it also includes family, which is also, I think, even harder, you know? Listen. (laughs) Listen. Oh, man. We're going to, at some point, we're going to have to have another. There's so many other things that I wanted to talk to you about, like just like management and leadership and like, and family and, you know, being a family of immigrants. And, anyways, but but, I want to be respectful of your time, but we can definitely do, you know, a round two. But um, the way that we like to wrap these up, as you know, are with what we call community questions. So it's um, nine sort of rapid fiery questions that at some point or another have been put forth by, you know, people in um, the Patreon community who are like, I would like to hear, you know, all the people of the season answer this question. So I have nine random questions for you if you're down for that. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. What is your current guilty pleasure? Oh, man. I think it's not new. (laughs) I like watching The Real Housewives of Atlanta when I really don't want to use my brain cells. And I feel like I so I watched some of the... um, the last season <laughs> over the weekend. And I, sometimes I feel so shitty afterwards because it's getting to a point where I feel like it's even exploitive, um, exploitative, exploitive of these women. Um, but yeah, that's my guilty pleasure. I, I love, I really enjoy the drama of it in small doses. I love it. Um, what's one change that you've made in your life, maybe a habit or a lifestyle change or a relationship career change, something else that felt really tough at the time, but really worth it in the end? I'd say cooking more. Um, when I, I, I never liked to cook and I, my partner and I ate out a lot. And since the be- I'd say the end of last year, but definitely the beginning of this year, um, we've tried things like Blue Apron and HelloFresh and it's led to us cooking more. Honestly, it's led to my partner learning how to cook really well and I get to enjoy that. But we now cook together at least three to four days a week and it's led to us eating cleaner and healthier. Um, and now it's kind of hard to go back because most of the time when I think about ordering delivery, I'm like, I don't even want any of these options. It's not so. even going to be that good. That's how I feel too. I know we talk about yeah. it all the time that we, I mean, there aren't that many vegan options in Bend anyway for eating out, which I guess is good because we save a lot of money, but yeah. we're, we've gotten to the point where like, we're pretty good cooks and especially we're good cooks of the things we like to eat. Right. I would say. Yeah. And so it's like, well, it's not going to be that good. I'm probably not going to feel good after. So I guess I'll just yeah. cook at home. And I mean, yeah, good problem to have, but. So we're not completely there. I want to get there where we, we know for a fact that we always will feel better, but I think my body has been like very grateful that I've shifted my kind of palate around junk food and crappy food a little bit. I still love French fries way too much though. So I mean, is there such a thing as too much love of French fries? There's a, there's a place here in town um, that's uh, like a little 
seating area that there's a bunch of food trucks around, right? Which like, obviously I know they have a ton of in the Bay Area and other places as well. And there's this one that does like a bunch of different kinds of French fries and they have salt and vinegar fries where it's this like salt and vinegar powder that they like, I like salt and vinegar, the kind of chips where like, it's so strong that like the roof of your mouth's on fire, like burning off, right? Like that's the kind of salt and vinegar I like. And so we will go there and get these like huge plates of fries that are fried in peanut oil, like covered in salt and vinegar. And it's the best. So if you ever come here, we will go get fries. Oh my gosh. I'm so down. I love fries. I'm, I'm learning to eat more and more sweet potato fries, but <laughs> fries are just delicious. So good. Um, okay. Next question. What helps you to stick with a long-term project or a goal? What's something that helps you? Um, peer accountability. I think talking about it with friends who consistently ask me about it is really helpful. And it's honestly one of the reasons why I created this mastermind group with my like group of like, 10 friends, um, because I wanted shorter term accountability for my goals. Like having friends who are like, hey, this is a really great idea. What did you do last week about it? You said you were going to do that thing. Did you do it? Um, I think that is hands down the best thing for me to actually accomplish things. Yeah, totally. So we talked about fear a bunch. What's something that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? Oh, starting a YouTube channel. I'm terrified of watching myself on video. I've been practicing. I have been like, I have everything I need to do it. I just still have not done it. Yeah. And so now you have something for people to hold you accountable to, right? I know <laughs> by the end of the summer, like I've launched it, I've set it up by the end of the summer, I will have some videos posted. So I can't wait. What's something that you think a lot of people do that you don't do? Oh, man. Honestly, it always feels like working out regularly based on social media. (laughs) (laughs) My discipline around running in particular has become really poor. So that's one thing for sure that I feel like I don't do enough of. But um, I think, I don't know. I think I don't look at people's highlight reel on social media and feel shitty about my life. Um, I, I get really excited by people's joys and highs in their lives. I get really inspired by it and motivated. I think instead of like, I've had some people talk about, yeah, I've seen a lot of articles around like, you know, don't feel like you have to have done this thing by 30 because so-and-so hasn't done it by 30. Like I don't have those feelings of like, Oh my God, I'm missing the mark. But I do feel really sad sometimes when I feel like those people are living the fullness of their potential and I have not decided make decisions to live the fullness of mine. So it's, it's not about like feeling bad about where I am in my life so much as am I doing the best that I could be doing to look and feel the way their lives look and feel. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent. You said that so well. What advice would you give yourself five years ago? Just put your, just put it out there, whatever idea whatever writing, whatever blog post, whatever video, whatever thing that you have in your head, don't wait for the right time to do it. Just literally just put it on paper and put it out there and learn to develop the, 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 skin, the thick skin to, to handle how people respond to it. Because now I'm finding myself in that situation where I'm, I'm, I'm now starting from that point. And I wish I had started at 25, 26. Yeah, yeah. When you look ahead at the next couple months, what do you feel most excited about? I feel most excited about above the bottom line. I feel like I've started something that's really interesting, a lot of fun, people find value in, but honestly, I feel like it's just the beginning of what I could create. And it's completely in the direction of the purpose that I've been wanting to walk into since before I went to business school. So I'm excited about the possibilities of where that can go. Which two to three books, any kind of book, any genre, would you say have had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend the most or reread the most? 
My favorite book in the world is called uh, Black Girl in Paris. It's written by Shea Youngblood. I first read it at 18 and I've read it multiple times since then. And the book is about this like young woman who gets like takes $600 and goes to Paris and follows her dream. And as a black woman, how that experience was, it, it started my obsession with Paris. It's why I studied abroad and undergrad and why I still aspire to live in Paris. Um, so as a novel, it's beautifully written. Um, everything about it I love. And it's not a very popular book. So most people, when I talk about it, have never heard of it. And I've only had one friend that I recommend it to who didn't absolutely love it. So I recommend that for good reading. Um, another book that I talk about sometimes when I'm on like management panels and, or related to business is a book that's um, How Will You Measure Your Life by Clay Christensen. And the whole book is really the lecture that he gives to his business school graduates like the, at the end of their experience around like, how do you think about what's really going to matter? You know, you could become CEO of a company, but what really matters? And the part of the book that has always stood out to me is where he talks about the importance of being a manager and how that's one of the most life-changing things you can do because you literally affect the way somebody feels and uh, what they're able to do for a significant portion of their day every day and how that therefore impacts their family and what they can do after work. Um, He says it far more beautifully than that. So it was the first time I thought about management and management of people as something that can affect social change. Mm. And then um, a book that I recently read that, amazing um i mean big magic was great it was last year but big magic was amazing for me to kickstart my creativity and honestly give myself permission to just make things and again yeah those are great options i mean i've read big magic obviously but um i haven't read the other two that you mentioned and as you know i'm also an obsessive reader so i love your book list recommendations and stuff on your site i'm always like oh i gotta read this i gotta read this yes i i don't remember if i had just created my book list when you had put yours up or if i did it afterwards but i remember it was around the same time and i was like of course she has a book list this is amazing of course obsessive (laughs) readers unite (laughs) um so the last question if you could leave our community the listeners with one call to action right now what would it be maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take i think this is like conversations I had yesterday reminded me of this, like your voice matters. And I was talking to somebody um, who I'm not very close with, but we know each other. We've kept in touch through social media and we finally had we met up for tea yesterday or coffee. And I was telling her I haven't been writing a lot lately, especially post-grad school, because I went to school with all these smart people and I feel like I don't have anything to really say. And, you know, I'm not as smart as a lot of people. And she was just like, first of all, I'm sorry you felt that way that is absolutely not true. And you, your voice matters. And it was just this reminder that, okay, you are judging yourself based on, you know, really ridiculous, unrealistic expectations often. And that your voice in and of itself, like you sharing your perspective doesn't need to be qualified by anybody else first and foremost, but by any, you know, on paper qualifications. And if you have a viewpoint on a topic, if you have something that you want to say, then I feel like I'm saying this for others as much as I'm saying it for myself, but just say it and you can learn and grow as you evolve. You don't have to have it perfectly you know, articulated that first time, but use your voice because it matters. Yeah. Telling the truth, telling your story. It's important. Yeah. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? And maybe if you have a favorite way to connect with new folks. Yeah. So I'm on all of the social media channels at Nikita, N-I-K-I-T-A. T 
as in Tremaine, that's my middle name, Mitchell. So Twitter, Nikita T. Mitchell, Nikita T. Mitchell.com. If you want to follow above the bottom line, it's above the bottom line.com. Um, and you can find me on Instagram anywhere. Um, I love to use social media. I, I'm pretty active on Twitter. And if you want to email me, you can also email Nikita T. Mitchell at gmail.com. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. This was such a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by people like Caroline. Hi, Caroline. Hi there, Nicole. It is so fun to have you, and I am excited to put you in the hot seat and to ask you five random questions. Are you ready? I am good to go. What is your guilty pleasure right now? Ooh, guilty pleasure. Well, I'm in the middle of starting up a plant-based um, food venture selling on market stalls. So my guilty pleasure is going to all the markets, the farmers markets in Edinburgh, where I'm from, and um, testing all the produce. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so good. And it's not all healthy. What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast? Or like, what's your dream breakfast? Ooh, dream breakfast it would definitely involve nut butter, I think. So some kind of like luxury smoothie involving lots of nut butter and um, nice coconut yogurt and things like that. So kind of healthy luxury. Yeah, That sounds also so delicious. I love putting lots of fats in smoothies, right? Avocados or, you know, cashew yogurt or yeah, anything like that. Nut butter. So good. There's just so much choice these days. I know. I know. I mean, we're, yeah, we're lucky. It's, I mean, it's a good time to do, to be eating plant-based, right? It's super easy. Definitely. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess currency exchange on this, but if you had an extra hundred dollars and you had to spend it on something fun, that's just for you, how would you spend it? Ooh, I'll try and not go down the the equipment for the business route. (laughs) Yeah, no, no business, just funsies. (laughs) Okay. And a hundred dollars is about a hundred pounds right now too. So, um, I think it would definitely involve traveling, traveling to a race, go, go towards a traveling budget to go to a trail race overseas, ideally in the Alps somewhere. Ooh, I mean, I bet it's amazing there. I can't say that I've ever run there, but it sounds beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's so dramatic. Well, you, didn't you say that you're doing UTMB? I'm doing UTMB in August. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that's in the summer. Yeah. August. And uh, all mm-hmm. the pictures that I've seen from that look incredibly challenging and incredibly beautiful. Yeah. I've done it once before and it was, it was the most physically difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Not so much for the running, but more for the sleep deprivation. It's the longest I've ever gone without sleep and you just turn into a, another being. <laughs> how, long, how long was it? <laughs> Um, 34 hours, just under 35 hours for me. Oh my God. The time limit is 46 and a half. So you, you have quite a long time. I don't know how people go that long without sleep. That's, I mean, and it's not just that long without sleep. It's that long without sleep and doing something that's incredibly physically demanding. I can't imagine. Yeah. Keeping moving forward. It's tough. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will be excited to hear how that goes. <laughs> Better you yeah. than me. That sounds, oh man. Um, <laughs> who would you say is one of your favorite people to follow on social media? Oh my goodness, it's probably all of your guests because I'm really inspired by podcasts. So um, 
let's see. At the moment, I'm obsessed with Minimalist Baker, just from listening to the interview on your podcast and and testing out lots of recipes. So, um, yeah, and lots of different foodie accounts on Instagram as well. So, So she'd probably be the one. Yeah, I'm obsessed with her. Clearly, I think that was obvious in the interview, but I don't know if you have her cookbook, um, like her actual hardcover cookbook. Every single thing that I've ever made, I mean, basically from her blog and from her cookbook, every single thing has been good. Like, how is that possible? <laughs> every single know, recipe turns out well. Yes. And they're just so simple and so quick. I've been um, obsessed with making her um, scones recipe, which is, the scones are a different thing here. It's quite interesting. Um, but yeah, making those and testing out different flowers as well. And, and every time they've turned out really great and yeah, great recipe. Really I'll quick. have to give that a chance. My favorite, I feel like my favorite dessert recipe of hers, she has these, um, I think she calls them raw brownies, but it's basically uh-huh. like a nut and date situation with a chocolate ganache frosting. They're so good. It's on her blog. So if you haven't made those, Ooh. definitely give those a try. I will. Definitely. Yeah, I'm, now I'm so hungry. Everything we're talking about is like so delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the last question, what's one of your favorite books or a book that has had a big impact on you? Oh, so one that I read years and years ago, um, and I've read it once in kind of my adult life, and I really need to read it again, is The Road Less Travelled by M. Scott Peck. Mm. I don't know if you've read that. I have. Yeah, that's just one of my favourites. And I, I, um, I'm I, terrible with memory. I've got an absolutely horrendous memory, but it's one book that I've remembered, you know, big parts of for, you know, a couple of decades. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it's really inspired my life in lots of different ways. So yeah, I need to reread that one. That's definitely my favorite book. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you've made a small and powerful pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share first why you decided to support the show and what you love best about kind of being in our community or the bonus content or anything like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, being a trail runner, I'm out for hours and hours on trails, training long for races and, you know, probably five, six years ago and got into podcasts because, you know, it's just a more sustainable thing to listen to when you're out for hours and hours and you get so bored of music. So, yeah, I got into the podcast and I um, obsessively listened to all of the episodes (laughs) of yours and, you know, many more. Um, And I just thought you know, you, you really have to put your money, um, into kind of what you believe in and, and, um, yeah, it's definitely a worthy cause. And I, and I also, you know, I've learned a lot about what goes into making a podcast and I know how kind of time consuming and expensive it is. So yeah. Every <laughs> yes, little it is. Help. Yeah. And it's not just putting your money, you know, not just signing up to be a, a patron, but also sharing it with friends because, um, I think that's important too, just using your own social media just to share with all the people you think is going to enjoy it. Because I think that's that's when people really pick up new things is just through word of mouth. Yeah, no, I, ab- I mean, I absolutely agree with you. And so since you have joined, has there been any particular bonus content or any of the things that we do that have been your favorites? Um. <clears throat> Yeah, when you posted, there was quite a few bonus episodes that went up a couple of months ago. I think it was maybe, was it the end of the year? Yeah, we yeah, we did a, an end of the year wrap up with, you know, every, basically the community voted on favorite past guests that they would love to hear an end of year wrap up from. And I think there were six or seven that we did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
And so I listened to all of those and they were, yeah, they were amazing. It was great, great content to have over the festive period to keep you going. <laughs> so yeah, I love the one with um, Liz Goodchild. She's really inspiring to listen to. Yeah, she is. She's a dear friend. She's fantastic. Also, um, someone else sort of in your time zone, right? She's she's over she on is. your side I of the know. world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's the best. Um, well, thank you for being brave and for joining me for this. I really appreciate it and your support of the show, of course. No worries. Keep up. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, and if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every month, go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight-episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 